0: Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programs and achieve best practice.
1: Player appearances can be immensely powerful as part of a sponsorship and it seems simple enough. Put a huge star on stage in front of a room full of people you are trying to impress or in a marquee as part of an activation and you'll engage your audience and there'll probably be lots of digital and social media to help spread it all. However, not everyone can afford the superstars and even if you can, it isn't always the best play when it comes to appearances. Like all sponsorship assets, it depends so much on what you are wanting to achieve. Add to that that so many sponsorship deals get topped up with player appearances as a bit of an add-on and a feel-good gesture and a lot of brands, and rights holders for that matter, can miss out on the huge benefits available through appearances. This is an especially important point when you consider that many athletes are on the lookout for more paid opportunities, and the chance to broaden their experiences and network and engage with the community. One man who knows this space well is James Begley. Not only is James the founder and CEO of Pickstar, the most trusted platform for facilitating paid engagements, large and small, but he's also been on the other side as an athlete. When he played 61 games of Australian rules football with St Kilda and Adelaide, and was one of those athletes on the lookout for more paid opportunities and the chance to broaden his own experiences and engage with his own community. James joins us in this episode to discuss how rights holders and brands can maximise the use of appearances in their sponsorships. I'm Daniel Loyston, and welcome to episode 79 of Inside Sponsorship and the first episode for 2020. I trust that the end of 2019 and the start of 2020 has been a good one for you and that the rest of 2020 has lots of promise both on the professional and the personal fronts. Along with James, also joining us on the show is CORE's Head of International Business, Mark Thompson, who discusses his latest blog, which looks at the changing face of broadcast and what this means for broadcast partnerships. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, welcome to the show. Hi, Daniel, how you doing, mate? I'm outstanding because I get to lot, watch a lot of sport. You and I, we would account for about twenty percent of sport viewership in Australia. I, I, I watch it. I just put I put old games on. I watch it in the background. I watch new games. I watch sports teams I don't even care about. I've got it on pretty much the whole time, unless my family makes me watch The Voice. But man, do we have a lot of ways than ever before to consume those sports that we love and even entertainment content because. Maybe only sort of like three, four, five years ago, it was kind of straightforward. I just turned the TV on. I had free to air, or I had my Fox plugged in, and and it just worked. They were the only, pretty much the only broadcasting partners for sport, and 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 plus the music and the entertainment. But nowadays, there are endless other channels via social media and dedicated streaming services and OTT and secondary TV channels. And I've still got the normal TV channels and my normal Fox, and, and depending on who I want to watch, I have to put it on normal TV or Fox or I have to sign up just to watch one game if it's a game of English soccer that I want to watch or football for the purists. I kind of feel like it's it's a lot of hard work sometimes. Is that a danger, not just for the rights holders, but more importantly because we're here to talk about sponsorship, is that a danger for the partnerships?
0: Look, on on the surface and without much thought, most people would conclude that you know, the evolution is too much dilution and, and dangerous to the success of broadcast partnerships, which, you know, was sort of revolve around advertising spend and, and subscriptions. And, I, and I've had many conversations with people who say that the, the peak of deals has, has been reached and I think I've said that myself on this podcast perhaps, but, you know, I was a, a, much less educated back then. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say I learn every something every day and if I don't, I go back to bed. <laughs> So I sleep a lot. So, you know, sports in particular have a need to start planning for a sharp decline and, you know, in revenue and deal sizes face significant turmoil and commercially at the same sort of, you know, time of renegotiation. And I hear these sort of doomsday stories all the time. And, and sometimes they're true. Like we're, we're talking, you know, Fox Sports in Australia, talking about reducing, you know, some of their paid-for content and there's only one sport that's coming off contract. So it's going to look good. Not, not too good for rugby um, potentially but in all is this a danger for partnerships I totally disagree that that it is why so if you, if you dive into the variety of options now you note that the main and um, the actual broadcast is the same so the commentary the feed it all comes via the main broadcast partner the streaming people rarely have their own commentators and you know feed you'll still see the logos and, and whatever right so you know the the exceptions are the, some commission broadcast but you know they've would have gone unbroadcasted before anyway so it's not you're not taking away an audience so you know the main broadcast feed regardless of the channel is still being captured shared consumed and in some cases by newer audiences who may not have engaged with the mainstream broadcast before because they may not have had you know pay TV or free-to-air TV or anything like that. Well, they're like only
1: that. just interested in that one sport. They don't want to buy the whole yep. you know, pay TV package.
0: Yeah, and so the larger reach and variety of options that are now out there lend themselves to partnership opportunities being sort of being between providers, allowing these providers to perhaps diversify their risk of paying high broadcast fees without taking away from the rights holder's needs. So, you know, you can see more partnerships in broadcast, which we see a little bit of, you know, dual broadcast partners and stuff. That's all about risk diversification. And and this just brings whole new channels and streams of risk diversity while still engaging new audiences you can watch two-minute clips you can people can watch it over the internet now you know legally um, and so <laughs> legally yeah and so you know i i think when you dive, dive deeper and you actually think about it with a commercial lens on it's it doesn't lend itself to being risky
1: so there's opportunities you speak about looking at it through or, or with that commercial lens on what does it mean for sponsorship
0: well i think the answer there's probably two answers to that right it, it depends on what the brand is sponsoring. So for rights holders, it's potentially great news. So, so they
1: can sponsor either the rights holder to start with? They
0: could sponsor the rights holder to start with or they could sponsor the broadcast itself. Okay. So that's the, the, the different bro- um, sponsorship options, right? So you know, potentially great news for, for rights holders, branding-based assets within partnerships will still get their same exposure there's a variety of options at disposal of viewers, means greater flexibility about when and how they consume. So you're not having to watch live to see stuff. You can watch it later. You can watch snippets, whatever. So there's, And the different channels may lend itself to different partnership opportunities that the rights holders control, especially if they're commissioned content like we spoke about before broadcaster sponsorships if you're sponsoring a broadcast in terms of on-screen partnerships during the main feature of the broadcast this too shouldn't be affected because if, remember remember they're, they're channeling the feed right so however what it does represent a challenge or a risk is to advertising attractiveness given the streaming or, or other options may not broadcast commercial content so you know tv ads and so the loss of that revenue should it head that way would put pressure on the fees able to being paid by broadcast rights, particularly with the free-to-air ones because the the, the advertising revenue on pay subscription TV is, is still important, but the subscription base is what holds it together. The free-to-air TV, 100% reliant on sponsorship and advertising. So that's the area that it could be affected, but again, there, there are ways of sort of cutting that pie up anyway.
1: So there's obviously opportunities, but we talk about risks and things that we need to manage. Does this represent any upside?
0: Oh, yeah, and it, and it benefits both parties. The biggest upside is a fresh and more hold in data, um, which can now be captured through social and streaming options. You have to sign up. You have to give your details to be able to consume the content.
1: And particularly if you're using something like Facebook to sign in with.
0: Yeah. So, you know, unlike previous years where audience were just a number and perhaps a location, you know, that, that that a Nielsen panel or something was giving us, then um, the subscription or member-based services can give us who, what, when and where and dive deep into their exact location, their age, their gender, their consumption rates, so how long they actually watch the content for at what time, what their income details are potentially if they're coming through Facebook sort of login and things like that and, and what their interests outside of, that sport are what other interests they've got so the stories we can then tell off the back of that information coming out is super exciting and who owns that data is really dependent on the broadcast partnership so it is another way of potential broadcasters who may be losing advertising revenue to just still maintain a high level of value in their
1: partnerships the interesting thing that came to mind as you were talking there about the details and the the demographics that you can pull out of it is that we often talk about the the advent of technology and how it's permeating everything that we do now in business and, and obviously sponsorship as well, is that those people streaming sports... Are going to be pretty digitally savvy, and they're the people that we're trying to access a lot more these days instead of just those people watching free to wear and going to the games.
0: Man, totally. And the people that are hearing you say that are listening to this through a device on a podcast, Congratulations. right? Like
1: it's <laughs> they're
0: being able to navigate, you know, a podcast uh, app or something to download it and then listen to it through their, you know, AirPods or something like that, which are wireless. And you know, it's
1: uh, while it's, they're in their Air- Uber that they ordered on their phone. In between Netflix shows. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. So we always like to round out these chats with okay, this is where we've come from. This is the opportunities and the risks that we've got in front of us right now. We like to round it off with what's next. What's next for this space?
0: So we're already starting to see some sports. The NBA is one that I call out. And, you know, the last two minutes of the game is an option that people can buy from the NBA. Crazy. Yeah. You know, if you're not a basketball fan, but. You know, you need to uphold a conversation in the office. That's a fantastic way of doing it. <laughs> so, you know, where certain elements of the broadcast are being chunked out for certain interest points to help attract more specific audience. So so it's clear that it's, it's important to say that that strategy from the NBA isn't about making people watch less basketball. That's about attracting a new audience to try and transition them into a more engaged and more loyal. taste.
1: It's a taste test. Correct.
0: But, but that also represents broadcast options for second-tier sports is, is what we're talking about as well. So, given the variety and volume, that's that's going to be key to the success of the emerging broadcasters. So, you know, KO Sport, you know, they advertise that they have over five hundred sporting options to choose from.
1: I couldn't even name one hundred and fifty sports. Oh, you should get on there, man. That's so cool.
0: You can watch. I'll never sleep. You can watch Pro Kurdi in India. I'll that's, watch that. It's amazing. Um, so you can you can watch all sorts of stuff, which is really cool. And and it. You know, would not have been as readily attractive to broadcasters before, but they need content now. Because they're an app and it's, it's always on, there's no scheduling. You can watch stuff whenever you want to watch stuff. So it's, it's really important to have a, a wide variety of, of broadcasters. And, you know, one that we're close to, which was sort of our, one of our early day clients, Touch Football Australia, or Touch Football NRL now, you know, they're, they're streamed, they're, they're broadcast live on, on you know, cable TV in Australia they're also streamed on KO and then they're also streamed on nrl.com.
1: Well, and they're also streamed on uh, Facebook around the big tournaments. And when you and I have friend, I don't know if you did this, but when you and I have friends at World Cups or national competitions and there's an important game on, I quite often turn it on and watch it at my desk while I'm supposed to be working.
0: 100%. And, and that sport would not have been attractive to a broadcast partnership before. But now the, the need for new content, the exciting nature of what they do, the short, ability to watch it relatively quickly it's attractive that then opens them up to be a, a legitimate player in the sponsorship game and so what will be interesting is how mainstream broad- broadcasters then try and diversify their risk that you know i mentioned earlier but, and how rights owners try and leverage the diverse scale of at their disposal to grow and not decrease that broadcast revenue so what i don't think there's going to be a decrease in broadcast values but but what i would love to be is a fly on the wall in the discussions around how they justify the decrease versus increase.
1: Again, some of this stuff makes my head spin and it certainly is exciting and and it's changing and anybody who thinks that they can predict it with any real certainty might have a little bit of egg on their face. But like you said, it'd be great to be a fly on the wall for some of those conversations. And, And the future is exciting because we want to get more content in front of more people, but we want to do it the right way. So listeners, if you want to read through Mark's thoughts in detail, just head to coresoftware.com, where you can read through it in your own time. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Player appearances were a part of James Begley's life when he was a professional athlete playing 61 games of AFL for St Kilda and Adelaide. And at the time, like most of his teammates, James was on the lookout for more paid opportunities and the chance to broaden his experiences and engage with the community. Following his AFL career, James moved into leadership development where he has advised high-profile organisations including CGU, Bendigo Bank, Fremantle Football Club, Mervac and Landcorp. It was in this crossover, however, between elite sport and the corporate world where James found there was a huge demand to engage sports stars, but very few people knew how to do it. And that led to the development of Pickstar, which is now the most trusted platform for facilitating paid engagements, large and small. And Pickstar has formed strategic partnerships with a number of important athlete associations, facilitated appearances for some of the biggest brands including McDonald's, Samsung, Sportsbet, Caltex and EY and counts organisations such as the Australian Olympic Committee and the National Rugby League as SAS clients. Joining us now to discuss how rights holders, athletes and brands can identify, plan and execute appearances within their sponsorships is James Begley, founder and CEO of Pickstar. Here's James. (laughs) James, welcome to the show. We always start with a few icebreaker questions just to get the show started and for the listeners just to get to know you a little bit. So your first one is, seeing we're recording this in January, what was the best Christmas present you got?
2: It was actually a, a an old-fashioned blade razor that my mother gave me, believe it or not. So the best present was from my mum, which I, which I sort of didn't expect, but I have been longing for, you know, kind of that old-fashioned blade that, you know, has the 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 belt strap that you sharpen it with and um being a slightly bearded man myself it actually makes the the shaping the beard a bit easier plus i've always wondered so yeah it sounds sounds strange but um it was well received
1: very nice interesting so your second icebreaker question is in your bio on the Pickstar website you list one of your career highlights as breaking a nathan buckley tackle tell us all about it i couldn't not ask this question
2: Obviously a bit tongue-in-cheek and, uh, you know, I mean, there's probably two parts to that. The one part is uh, I played 61 games of AFL football and so, you know, I would say that's a fairly mediocre return. So, therefore, the the highlight reel is not huge. But one of the things which I do feel incredibly proud of is that I played alongside and against some absolute champions and Nathan Buckley's a champion. So, there might have been a few others which were slightly more uh, impressive than breaking a Nathan Buckley tackle, but I thought... You know, that's something which I'll never forget. I was on the, uh, I was on the MCG and he was, uh, he was about to close me down in the middle of the ground and I, I just brushed him aside and, and I think I kicked the ball into the forward 50. So, yeah, I won't forget it for a, for a long time.
1: So you're on the show to take us inside player appearances. And as I mentioned in the intro and as you also just mentioned, you played AFL football. What was the most memorable player appearance that you ever did during your AFL career? Probably the most
2: memorable one was I was one of the runners, uh, the sprint uh, contestants at halftime at the grand final. So for those that do know AFL, it's a bit of a gimmick, but it's also, uh, it counts as an appearance and, you know, there's obviously sponsorship and branding that goes around that. And that obviously airs at a fairly um, uh, popular time. So that was one look up. There's a whole host of other kind of more boring ones that I've done, but in terms of actually, Ticking a, an AFL uh, appearance off my tw- the, the 21 required, plus also getting paid a little bit, getting a few free tickets to the grand final. It was a fairly fairly nice experience. Well, it was funny because I actually did really poorly. I'm not the quickest of players, but I thought, oh, I'll have a crack at this and, you know, hopefully I'll be in the, in the middle of the pack. I think I came second last. A guy called Brett, Brett Deledio won by about 10 metres. So <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> it was humbling.
1: Very good. So once you moved into the corporate world after you'd finished your AFL career, how did you come to realize that the ability for brands to source appearances easily was a real issue and one actually worth addressing?
2: Well, these sorts of answers, you'd love to say that there's a eureka moment where there's a sort of a singular point in time where a bolt of lightning strikes you and you just realize that there's an answer to the problem. I think the, the essence of it, though, really was probably two or three years into my corporate consulting, and I was still working with AFL clubs. So I was, I was straddling both sides of the fence, and it just became apparent that there was a huge demand for talent. and And we all sort of know that, like we know that corporates are and and brands are really wanting to access players. So that wasn't the groundbreaking bit. But I guess the thing that I knew that no one else really was paying much attention to was that there was a huge demand from athletes to do more commercial opportunities and not just big ones. And that was the, that was the, that is the shocking bit still for a lot of people. They, they perceive uh, talent and sporting talent, especially to be out of reach from a budgetary point of view. But, you know, for a whole host of reasons, what I understood was that talent are really keen to, to participate in more commercial opportunities and that, you know budget is not just the only thing so for me it was probably about 2010 believe it or not 2011 when just the the idea was was percolating and I just had this this sort of this thought that you know in so many other industries and areas this marketplace technology was solving a real problem and so what I considered was how applicable could that technology be in the sporting landscape and that was that was sort of the formation of the idea.
1: And so was that keenness for athletes and talent to do more corporate and commercial opportunities? Obviously, there can be the monetary side of it, but was do you feel as though that was more about them wanting to experience things and network and set themselves up for post their sporting career?
2: Look, it really ranges. That's definitely one part of it. You know, there, there's, I think, you know, if you look at someone a male or a female who's probably mid twenties, they've established themselves as a as a player. And so they're less worried about securing a spot in a team or, or making an Olympic squad or or you know participating at a senior level. They suddenly go, right, I'm actually I know that the end is closer than than further away. And so they tend to turn their attention to What can I do that will broaden my experiences, you know, in terms of opportunities? Then there's just, let's be honest, there's a whole lot of talent that just love pocket money and they love the, the monetary aspect. They're much more driven by the dollar. They're much more active and they're willing to give most things a go. And then you've got more of your upper end talent who are really happy to do paid work, but they really want it to be in their sweet spot and they really want to do it when it's either meaningful for them commercially or whether it's meaningful for them in terms of a passion point so you do have a broad spectrum but i would you know recommend to all the athletes that i ever encounter is to just try things because look it could be a few hundred dollars uh, that that comes your way through a commercial opportunity but you just might meet someone or you might get exposed to an industry that you realize you just didn't want to be a part of or that you're actually really passionate about It, it it can actually serve you really well as you do transition out of sport
1: it's great advice. On the other side of the fence of the brands, what are a few things brands don't really understand about athlete appearances? And I mean that in a nice way, as in let's get the record straight a little bit so that brands can better understand the opportunities that might be available to them.
2: Let's go really logistical to start with. Let's, let's look at how some brand activations are deployed and let's look at the AFL because that's probably – my background, but this, this applies across, that, that some of the, the major brands are given, let's say, 12 appearances in a year. The first thing is that those of 12 appearances where they're allowed to have a couple of talent appear are uh, often not well-organized and not well-deployed. In other words, you get halfway through the year and the brands and the, and the club tend to go, oh, we, now we've got to organize this. Let's just make it happen. And so the meaningful nature of the appearance, firstly, is not considered, and it's just ticker box. Let's send some athletes to a shopping center and they'll stand around for an hour and we'll say that's an activation. And as a talent, you walk there and I I distinctly remember this, you know, and I know it wasn't the world's most famous player, but you'd go to a shopping center and players would just walk past you and go, Oh, you're not Andrew McLeod. And I go, no, I'm not. (laughs) And thanks. Thanks for coming. So, you know, firstly it's to be really organized because that'll give you the most amount of time to understand you know, why you are doing the appearance. And that's the first thing I ask any brand or or corporate who who is wanting to source athletes is that you want sort of brand exposure yeah. and brand alignment. In other words, you're trading off a sports star to get people there. Is it more that you want to make the event that's already organised more meaningful? So the story of the athlete or the skill set of the athlete is more important. And I say that because... Often brands will say, we want a famous person because that's going to be the best fit. Well, when they uncover their real need, it's like, well, the event is already happening and we're already sold out. So actually, we're really more interested in those people that are coming, getting something hugely valuable. And therefore, sometimes a Paralympian, an inspirational story is, is more interesting than just necessarily a famous person. But what I would say in terms of brands what they are best off doing is really picking apart the athlete that they are getting, speaking to them, getting a real understanding as of what makes them tick. What are their passion points? Because once you start to tap into the passion point of an athlete, there'll be putty in your hands for the event or the appearance or the activation that you're organizing.
1: So that focuses on the planning and the understanding of the why. And so leading into that, the execution happens and when a rights holder sends talent out for a corporate appearance as part of their sponsorship contract, what are some of the main things that that rights holder really does need to have in place or they need to get right to ensure that the most is made of the opportunity and that it actually goes smoothly?
2: I'm going to put in a bit of a plug here um, because my business, Pickstar, has rolled out a SaaS model which which does exactly this. We've, we've sold it into the AOC, the NRL, and really what it's about is is getting all the logistical angles of the execution right, uh, right up front. So in other words, we've got a platform where it's really, really granular. It says, what time does the event start? I mean, this sounds boring, but this is important. Not just what time does the event start, but what time do you need the athlete there? And they're two different things often an event starts where you need the athlete there at half an hour prior. So it's, it's things like that. It's considering travel time, it's considering generally. Look, if if an athlete is there for an hour and you want an hour's uh, the the athlete to speak for an hour, that's never never do that. Try and do it you know 15 20 minutes of of uh, the athlete speaking and then really question and answer. So breaking up um, the time. It's also being really clear as to do you know is there a portion of time allocated for signing and autographs. It's, it's being really, really um, structured in the way that you maximize every minute of that talent's time. And then secondly, having someone on the ground who is actually a very sort of assertive chaperone so that, you know, we all want our piece of the athlete because what happens is, you know, they'll get asked for autographs and they'll get asked to do things that isn't necessarily on the run sheet and that can detract and take away from really why they're there. So it's having someone to really be a bit of a, conductor of the day and i'm talking even in 10 or 15 minute increments which might seem a bit of overkill but having that structure and then executing that structure down to the last minute is really important
1: i love that assertive chaperone or the conductor piece of advice you you just gave let's say that person does their job properly they've got the athlete where they need to be and let's say I'm a CEO, work at a brand obviously, and I've booked an amazing athlete to come to my corporate retreat and give a talk and everyone is really excited and I'm the CEO and I'm standing on stage and I've said a few words and and while the athlete sort of stands off to the side out of view, how do I deliver a great introduction for my talent that's about to appear and ensure that they really get their appearance off on the right foot?
2: The big piece of advice is don't just regurgitate some stats from a Wikipedia page, there's nothing more boring, especially for the audience who might not even know much about the sport. There's nothing more boring than hearing sort of numbers about games and, you know, X number of best and fairest. And I mean, even, even I, I mean, I like sport and even that just washes over my head. I would give a very, you know, one or two sentences on that person's career. But if they're famous, they're probably all going to know something about that talent. I think if you can give a real personal flavour, as to who's about to speak, my my recommendation would be always, you know, give the, the athlete a call and, and try and uncover something about their life or them as a person or their family. That is interesting because from a talent's point of view as well, like they're as interested, if not more in that, than they are about their own career. And it also, it, it allows the, the members of your retreat to begin to access the talent in terms of connection. One of the things which you pick star the business that I founded with Matthew Pavlich about three years ago it's a bit of a um, dichotomy because on one hand we're saying athletes are superstars they're otherworldly but then on the other hand we're saying but they're accessible and they're within reach so really you kind of want to straddle that same world with the talent you want to pump them up and that they're a superstar but then Just give something personal or a failure or a vulnerable time or just, you know, something about their family. Something relatable. Exactly, yeah. And that for me is the essence of a good introduction and also don't make it too long because people are bored of you and they don't want to hear you. They want to hear the person that's about to speak.
1: I'm the CEO. I'm highly offended by that comment, James. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's bring all that to life with a with a real example rather than the fake one where I'm the CEO standing on stage. And case studies are a powerful marketing tool, and you've gone all in with them on your website with over 60 case studies of successful appearances on the site. As such, I gave you some advance notice and I let you pick your favourite one to talk the audience through. What have you chosen for us?
2: Uh, I have to give two because I mean, and that is, I'll give you the gamut of what Pickstar does because that gives you a taste. And uh, look, we have done about three, three and a half thousand transactions now, which are, you know, three and a half thousand appearances. So we've got a few to pick from, but I'll I'll go from, you know, a simple uh, fan engagement, which is literally a, a West Coast Eagle. Josh Kennedy was booked for a birthday party and he, you know, this kid was a massive West Coast fan and look, it wasn't a lot of money. I can tell you that because Josh, you know, is, is is a great talent. He he rocked up at this kid's birthday party, and and by all reports, the, the the mum sent us an email the next day just saying the kid just had a moment in their life that they will never ever forget. And Josh stayed and played with the kids, and and you can imagine the kid then on the Monday at school would have been absolute, you know, sort of king of the of of the yard. So. You know, those fan experiences are just, they really do melt your heart when we get good reports after they've occurred. And then I'll take you right through to the other one, which is, you know, for a a very large sum, Adam Gilchrist was booked by Resimac, which is a financial advisory, I think, and planning business in Perth. And he was booked for a a three-year, you know, sort of multi-layered ambassadorial uh, in-person of appearance and um, social um, campaign which was obviously the most significant one we've done to this point so those two really for me symbolize uh, the power and the breadth of what our marketplace does and it's something from you know $150 say through to you know six figures
1: has how brands work with athletes been pretty stable in recent times or is it like most areas of communications these days where things are changing heavily
2: I think it's really in flux. I think it's definitely shifting. What you're seeing now is, is brands are less inclined to go for, you know, three, four, five megastars, and that's kind of it. That's their marketing dollar spent in terms of talent, and they'll put them on three-year deals and, you know, we'll just work with those talent. They're much more fragmented now in the way that they approach things. So brands are uh, would rather engage talent at a more micro level, you know, in a spot sense. So we'll work with you for a few months. There'll be, uh, you know, aspects to that deal, but then we'll shake hands and we'll say, thanks. And they'll do that. They'll, they'll carve up the same marketing dollar and maybe have one ambassador and, and sort of, um, you know, major talent and then the rest will just be specific and relevant to their needs for that point in time for whatever they're doing. So, from a, a brand point of view the, the logistics of it are, are increasing ever more. From a brand agency point of view, it's becoming a lot harder because they're having to you know spend less money per talent, but then they've still got a lot of organization. And then from the, the talents point of view, they're becoming much more savvy and much more active at knowing what their worth is across digital, you know in person and from an ambassadorial point of view so you, you might say brands are, are are sort of keeping the same amount of spend but are broadening the talent pool and and talent themselves are becoming more educated about the process
1: well, when a rights holder is discussing a potential sponsorship with a brand how should they be positioning the types of appearances that we're talking about both in terms of building a vision of how it could be successful for that brand in their marketing, but also with the objectives that they should be putting in front of a brand and highlighting that they can help the brand achieve through these appearances?
2: Firstly, player appearances within these activations are normally the last thing that are, that is organised. It's sort of seen as a bit of an ancillary. Oh, now we've just got to kind of, you know, put a few talent into um, the events surrounding our our sort of rights and our deal. So the first thing is I'll say, try and elevate it and actually look at what can be achieved and be really clear on whether you want it to be about brand awareness or you know leads or sales or network. Like, why is it? Because I come back to my earlier point. If you want brand awareness, just get the biggest star that you can get your hands on and whack them in a marquee and get a heap of social and PR. But if actually what you're trying to do is nurture clients and corporates, then try and understand the the talent who on the day will give you the best value. Sometimes the most famous talent are kind of, uh, let's say, not inclined to go out of their way to make an effort with people. A mid-range talent who's coming to the end of their career will really work the room. They'll over-service the room. They'll be charismatic. You know, we look, for us, netballers are just such a great example of an untapped market. Netballers are hungry. They've got great social following. The social followings are highly engaged. They don't cost much, and they're just really, really hungry to do a great job. So, in terms of you know uh, understanding you know why you want it to occur, I would say that's probably the the most important bit.
1: If a brand is seeking to work with an athlete as, let's say, a brand ambassador, but it isn't part of an actual sponsorship with a rights holder, i.e. it's just a direct source, how do they go about that? Because for me, it feels a little bit chicken and egg. Do they go and identify some talent options and, and lock one in and then build a plan around that talent? Or do they fully build out their plan and then try and look for the perfect fit?
2: I'm going to sound boring. Firstly, why do you want to work with the athlete? If you can write it down in one sentence, then you're halfway there. Second point is always have a wish list. And the wish list is important, but never just go after one athlete. And the reason is, and it's part of why Pickstar is powerful for us, because market forces say to talent, hey, you're one of five in the mix. If you don't want to do it, that's okay. We've got other people here who are keen. If you go after just one talent and you start a negotiation process with their agent, there's a lot more bargaining power. So the first thing is have a wish list. Second thing is you know use something like Pickstar because you're better off being canvassing the ta- you know the, a broader talent pool as possible because you just never know who's out there who might be really interested in in being that talent that you've never considered before. So for me, it's it's have the need. It's then have a wish list of who you want but then canvas as many of the talent as possible before making a selection and that's usually what brands don't do. Brands will go, oh, we need, you know, James Begley for this type of ambassadorial role. Let's go and get him. We'll call his manager or her manager. So that, that for us is a, probably an old-fashioned way of doing
1: it. If you have multiple people in your mix And as you said before, the talent can say, no, that's okay, because we've got other people that are in our mix and, and might say yes. How does an elite athlete weigh up a commercial opportunity when it's put in front of them like that? What are the things that they're considering at their end that makes them say yes or no?
2: We've discovered four main pillars of what makes an athlete say yes. And for us, it is budget, it is availability, it's passion and it's location. And probably the fifth type of you know uh, element is just what style of event is it? is it online or is it in person or is it ambassador role? But that seems to be less important. If you look at those first four pillars, athletes will instinctively all weight those differently, and they'll make an instinctive value judgment on every single opportunity, even if it's $300. Like we had a talent recently who who did an in-person half an hour event for for $300. And then they, you know, just signed on for something which is thirty thousand dollars. So gone are the days where you say make market rate. There's a minimum, and athletes will only do something for above that. Athletes understand the nature and of what they're doing and who for. And if it's for a school for half an hour, there's a there's a different. They make a different sort of moral judgment on on how much they would do that for, as opposed to a major shopping centre you know sort of uh outlet who's you know very commercial making lots of money so for me those four things are critical and the problem is that no athlete is the same hence why there is no formula and why casting your net as broadly as possible is a really powerful thing because you just don't know how athletes weigh these things up
1: An athletes popularity can rise and fall yet retired athletes also have so much to offer in the appearance space what do you think makes a talent a sought after talent and popular with brands
2: great question the first point is that brands and you know commercial partners want characters these days and it's really hard because athletes are more sanitized now than ever in fact athletes have never been more boring in some respects so what we're finding is the athletes uh, need to have some charisma, some character. They need to be themselves. They need to be authentic. There is a bare minimum level of achievement that needs to happen. Um, let's not beat around the bush. You need to be good at what you do. But even you don't have to be amazing. As long as you can, you know, transfer and tr- transmit your personality through digital, through you know in-person events then brands are going to want to get a hold of you and we see that all the time it's not necessarily the the most decorated players it's maybe the the more modest uh, player but who's got a, a footprint and a profile in the media simply because they're good value so we've definitely seen you know less of those in this day and age which makes them actually more sought
1: after Appearances can clearly be beneficial, that's why we're here talking about it, but the power of an athlete's brand isn't just confined to physical appearances at events and activations. There is the whole world of digital and social media, yet I don't think we see a lot of rights holders and brands utilising athletes in their social channels as part of a sponsorship activation. We do see some, yes, absolutely, but it isn't as widespread as I think it, it probably could be. What's your opinion on brands utilising athletes in their social media campaigns?
2: I 100% agree. I think brands have been less um, aggressive at using talent in this in this way, and I think talent themselves have really lagged behind, you know, the social influencers and the celebrities because they haven't really grasped, or you know, they are starting to, but they they don't really grasp the power of what they've got. And and the reason they've got more power than most is because they've got a brand and an identity for something other than just being a social influencer. They're, you know, they'll walk down the street and people recognize them and they just happen to have highly engaged fans. So, you know, there's the obvious kind of, you know, big corporate stuff and, and athletes will be involved in that. But on the whole, I mean, the social activations for us have been a, a booming part of our, um, you know, the growth of our business. It's catching up to where the rest of the world is, but I would, I would fully agree that I think there's still a way to go. Well,
1: I asked you earlier about whether working with athletes has changed in recent times, and so that was a very now question. Let's look at the future. I'm curious about some of the trends you see or the direction that you think the space will take.
2: Brands really want authentic relationships now. There's been the explosion of social influences where we don't really care if the influencers ever heard of our brand before. We'll send them some product and we want them to post about it. Now we have brands coming to us wanting a, a sporting talent who have regularly drunk kombucha every morning and who are interested in being a kombucha brand ambassador. So they don't want anyone who is genuinely not interested in their product. And so I think there will be that that shift more towards the authentic relationships, uh, rather than just on mass, let's seed our product and get as much reach as possible through, you know, re, reposting pictures. That's definitely one. I think in terms of the athlete's point of view, I think they are doing less and less one-off social media. We have, you know, brands coming to us to say, "Hey, would so and so post a brand, uh, post a picture of our brand for four hundred dollars?" and Two years ago they would, you know, most, if not all athletes would have said said yes. But now the athletes are a bit more savvy and they're saying, well, no, because I'm effectively aligning my brand to yours forever because there's a picture out there on the internet of me using your product. So athletes now are saying we would rather be a part of a more long term sort of conversation than just a one-off. That's social. I think, look, I think the in-person appearance stuff is just untapped. I don't think anyone's doing it really well. I think it's again it's seen as an afterthought and I think there's real there's real growth area in the way that athletes are used in in person activations. I think that's that's going to be a really exciting space to see. And look, it sounds boring, but the esports esports world is is again on the tip of everyone's uh, tongue and no one really knows what to do with it. Everyone's sort of Trying to have a go at the esports, but no one really understands how to commercialise it just yet. And I love it because, as yet, there's no real superstars, there's no household names yet in esports. But I'll guarantee, you in ten years' time, we will we will see an esports champion from Australia, and everyone will know their name like we know, you know, um, yeah, Steve Smith's name. Um, that's just it's just a matter of time
1: I couldn't agree more and as you were talking there and we were talking before we hit record we both got young families and my son spends a a reasonable amount of time watching people play computer games on YouTube and as you were talking I thought I wonder whether one day some of those esports superstars will do an appearance where they live stream into your house and play games with your kids and then talk to them on the big screen when they could be anywhere in the world connecting with their fans
2: We've actually done that. So uh, we've got a few eSport uh, heroes on our website. We've had a couple of those. So, yeah, I think it's it's just the start of it because, like you said, the eSports player is not bound by location. It's a, It's a digital appearance, which is not possible for, you know, anyone else.
1: In fact, the kids would probably find it weird if it wasn't a digital appearance.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not sure too so how some of the talent will go socially in some of those situations.
1: <laughs> so James, as we begin to round this out, I thought it'd be really cool to find out from your perspective, who are the five hottest properties right now? Could be anywhere in the world and what makes them so attractive to brands?
2: Sam Kerr is, is, is one in Australia right now that is like, she's just she could fit just about every brand she you know in terms of being female she's uh, you know up and coming you know two years ago she was doing stuff through our Pixstar website unmanaged she's very humble she's very authentic and she's obviously going great guns at the moment steve smith is a boring but obvious one um he's he's hot because he's He's amazing at what he does. He's also been to the dark side now, which I kind of like. He's got a bit of, you know, kind of grit and he's he's not perfect. And I actually think that that will work out for him fine in the long run. You know, when you look at hottest stars, you, you've probably got to look at the national sports and brands because you can have, a, you know, an AFL player uh, like Dustin Martin, who's obviously, uh, you know, huge in AFL world, but he's... He's never going to translate it as broadly across. So sticking to some of those, you know, uh, national sports, I think someone like Kate Campbell is is really, really active in our searches and brands are wanting to get hold of her. She's obviously a real gold medal sort of hope. She came off the last Olympics and experienced a real low period. She's a great talent and she's very hungry to work with. So Kate Campbell, who you know, obviously an Australian swim team. There's sort of three of the hot ones. I'm, I'm just uh, scrambling to get a couple more. Well, let me, let
1: me ask you another question. It can't be yourself and it can't be Matthew Pavlich but if you, as Pigstar, were going to go out and get a talent to come to a corporate cocktail event or retreat or something like that, who would you want to come? Uh, which state do you live in? Let's pick the biggest one. Let's go New South Wales. You
2: know, Lance Franklin is is the biggest name player but I, I probably wouldn't give him the, the role he's probably a bit sick of it someone like a, a josh kennedy who's an absolute you know yeah he's a fantastic human he's an amazing player he looks like he's chiseled from the greek gods i would say he's probably number one
1: not sure if you've done your research james but i feel like that's a dig at a hawthorne supporter to pick two ex hawthorne players that <laughs> have now gone to another club <laughs> Uh, James, if people want to find out more about Pickstar and find out how you can help them or they want to connect with you and continue the conversation around this, what can they do?
2: Pickstar is is obviously online, so go to pickstar.com.au, P-I-C-K-S-T-A-R.com.au and, and there's a, a range of ways through the website that you can, you can speak to someone uh, through a chat uh, site you can you can obviously lodge a request or you can just email us if you've got any inquiries our, our numbers there. Me personally I'm um, you know I'm on on all the LinkedIn, uh, Instagram uh, and and Facebook uh, sites so I'm more than happy to provide those. You can put them in the notes of the podcast. Uh, but like what we do say is just speculate in your mind and the whole point of Pickstar is that it doesn't have to proceed for you to post an opportunity. And then find out that you you're probably not going to um, you know go ahead with it. The whole point of it is we like people to be speculative and go, well, who's out there and would they do would they attend my event or fill the needs of my requirement for this much money? And you'll get live interactive um, responses as the athletes themselves say yes or no.
1: It's great advice and listeners, if you are in this space and you're thinking about that, you're on the brand side, then follow James's advice and get on the Pickstar website and start speculating. You never know where that conversation might go. James Begley, founder and CEO at Pickstar, thank you so much for taking us inside Athlete Appearances. Cheers. That's a wrap for Episode 79. It has been great having you listen to the show and I trust that James taking you inside Appearances has you really thinking about how you can deliver maximum benefit to your sponsors if you work on the rights holder side, or how you can make the most of appearances if you work on the brand side? You can find out more by visiting pickstar.com.au. That's P I C K star.com.au. And I highly recommend visiting the site and reading some of their short case studies for inspiration. And if you are a brand, like Jane said, the platform has been developed with the ability for you to start thinking and exploring opportunities without any commitment whatsoever. You can connect with James by searching for him on LinkedIn, and I've provided a link to his profile in the show notes at coresoftware.com. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And don't forget how much I love giving shout-outs. There were none to give out for this episode, but please, shoot me a message on LinkedIn and say hi and let me know how you're connected into the world of sponsorship and I'll give you a shout out in episode 80. And if you want to connect with Core Software's Head of International Business, Mark Thompson, you can catch him on mark.thompson at coresoftware.com or, of course, you can search for him on LinkedIn as well. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.